Welcome to X Behind the Lines, Activist News and Views. Today's show is Pine Gap on Trial, and I'm Beck Horridge. In September last year, a group of people from across Australia gathered in Alice Springs to mark 50 years since the lease was first signed for the Pine Gap US Military Intelligence Base. Most people don't know much about this facility just south of Alice Springs, and that's just the way the authorities want it, and for good reason. The base, and what it does, has been intentionally kept secret. Over the years, it has been used to gather intelligence for the American, CIA, National Security Agency, and the U.S. military as part of the U.S. nuclear weapons program and used to target drone attacks. A group of six peace activists, Paulie Christie, Jim Dowling, Margaret Pastorius, Andy Payne, Tim Webb and Franz Dowling, decided to bring what Pine Gap is and does into the light. They walked onto the base as peace pilgrims, carrying musical instruments and an image from the U.S. war in Iraq of a father holding his dead daughter up with her leg in bloody tatters. They went to the base to play musical lament to the death and misery caused by Pine Gap. At dawn, after walking through the night for hours, arrived at the fence surrounding the base and climbed through. Then they took out their musical instruments to play the lament for the sorrows created by war. They were only able to play a few bars before they were arrested by base security. And here's the lament they played.
was Lament to War, played by Margie Pastorius and Franz Dowling. This was the song they played on Mariner's Hill after they walked all night into top-secret Pine Gap Spy and Drone Base, 18 kilometres southwest of Alice Springs. Exhausted, after walking all night as the sun rose, Margie suddenly found a magic strength to stride up Mariner's Hill while playing her viola. I spoke to Margie Pastorius shortly before the trial. Hi, I'm Margie and I'm here in Alice Springs. We've just come back after a year away. Uh, we were here last year for some protests and we actually went into Pine Gap to have a good look at what was going on there. And we went and prayed on the mountain that some change would come. And tomorrow night with some local people welcoming us here to this place, which is of course Arunda country and there was a terrible invasion over a hundred years ago and so we are going to acknowledge that. We'll have an event up on Anzac Hill to remember the frontier wars. Lest we forget the frontier wars is our thinking that those wars are the basic things we as Australians need to remember and lament and our, our inability to do so is driving these current wars and our involvement in these current wars. It means that we are still in this colonial mindset where we think we can take anything we want. The focus is of course Pine Gap, which is one of the largest war fighting facilities in the world uh, with ballistic missiles and it's a military operations centre and decisions get made there to bomb people using drones, using helicopters and using big jets to bomb in all different sorts of theatres of war, except that as we know, they're not actually declared wars, they're just places the United States goes to try and take control. And we want to close Pine Gap and we went in there to stop Pine Gap and we want people to know what's going on there and we're drawing attention to it, we want to shine a light on it because it's in darkness, it's in this big shadow and the government says you're not allowed to talk about it, well we're talking about it and that's what we want, is we want everyone talking about it. The actions of the Pine Gap 6 are not an isolated event but come on the strength of many protests at Pine Gap over the years. For years, former Green Senator Scott Ludlam has been raising questions about Pine Gap inside and outside Parliament House, and he's a supporter of the Pine Gap 6. He was there in Alice Springs during the trial as an expert witness. We'll hear quite a bit from Scott on today's edition of Behind the Lines, Pine Gap on Trial. Andy Payne spoke to him in November, shortly before the trials. I don't think most Australians are aware of the fact that in 2016, six activists uh, trespassed at the Pine Gap Defence Facility. So this is a huge spy base, military base, located just outside of Alice Springs in Central Australia that's been the focus of, of protests and demonstrations really since it was built in the 1970s. So these six individuals, they committed no property damage, but they have broken into that base, um, gave themselves up to police, dropped banners, and they were, they were there for a couple of hours in 2016. And they've been charged under um, an act that's actually only been invoked once before, the Defence Special Undertakings Act, which was 
toughened up and made even more repressive by the Rudd government a couple of years previously. And they, they now face seven years in jail. And I think it's important when they come to trial in Alice Springs in November that everybody is very well aware that although these individuals committed absolutely no damage at all, they're committed to nonviolence and to a peaceful demonstration, that the base itself is implicated in nuclear weapons targeting in our region. It's implicated in an illegal drone assassination program run by the United States government. And it is also implicated in US-run massive uh, surveillance effort that's targeted at civilian populations right around the world. That's what happens at Pine Gap. That's what it's for. And I think against the scale of the activities that go on there, which are also unknown to most people in this country, which our, tax, our taxes help go to support, the actions of these peaceful demonstrators, I think not only should they, be, uh, should they have been charged, not only should they not be facing seven years in prison, we need to hear their point of view. We need their voices raised. So they're intending on using that trial as a platform to run that argument, but we need to make sure that they're properly, legally supported so that they don't end up serving up to seven years in prison for doing something uh, that I think most people really would support. They're standing up against massive institutionalised violence. They've taken a stand for peace and we need to make sure that it doesn't cost them dearly. That was Scott Ludlam. He's been a mover and a shaker in the peace movement for years and helped set up IPAN, the independent and peaceful Australia network. Malcolm Fraser, who was PM from 1975, called for the closure of Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility in his book Dangerous Allies. Now this is ironic as there is testimony that the previous Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, was sacked as PM because of CIA concern when he questioned Pine Gap and thought Australians should know more about what happens there. He himself, as Prime Minister, wanted to know what was happening there. The official government stance of both the Labour and Liberals is that it is a joint defence facility. They give it unquestioning bipartisan support and won't say what's happening there. It's hard for us to even know if our politicians know what Pine Gap really does. In 2013, Edward Snowden released National Security Agency documents that described Pine Gap's role globally, scooping up vast amounts of information for use by the USA confirming what Pine Gap opponents had been saying for years. Every mobile phone call, every stroke of your keyboard, iPads, Facebook, you name it, build what they call the pattern of life, a detailed profile of a target and anyone associated with them. And the number of people that can be caught up in this dragnet can be huge. The group of peace pilgrims was not just brought together by this action. Three of them live together in Dorothy Day House in Brisbane, where they live simply and communally, opening doors to friends and strangers. Jim has for many years been living in a similar communities, and Margaret is also a long-time friend. They've all been involved in peace activism for some time, 
and also see this as just an extension of their lives spent trying to live consistently with the values of love, justice and sustainability. Andy Payne and Tim Webb talked to me just before their trial. I'm Andy Payne. I've come to Alice Springs from Brisbane. Last year in September, me and a group of others walked onto Pine Gap to do a lament for the death and misery caused by that place. And part of the reason why we wanted to do that is to try to shine a light on what Pine Gap does and bring attention to it. And there's a lot of secrecy around Pine Gap including the threat of the law that we've been charged under the Defence Special Undertakings Act. But there's also a lot of euphemisms about it and what it does and that cover up the fact that really it collects data that's used to kill people, often in their own homes, in drone strikes. And so by going and specifically talking about the deaths caused by Pine Gap and lamenting what happens, what we hope to do is to shine a light on that place hidden away in the middle of Australia and in the court case coming up we hope to do the same. My name is Tim Webb, I've been living in Brisbane although I'm from New Zealand so as a New Zealander I stand beside uh, my Australian compatriots in this struggle for justice. We believe that Pine Gap is very ingrained in the US military complex and that it's uh, very integral to the war in the Middle East um, and other places in the world. And the killing of innocent civilians is always part of war. So the main reason for me going and doing this action was to interrupt as, as much as I could that process of killing innocent civilians. That was Andy Payne and Tim Webb, the Pine Gap Peace Pilgrims. For their non-violent lament... They were charged under the Defence Special Undertakings Act, a rarely used law which carries the remarkably strict penalty of seven years in prison. From November the 13th to 23rd, the Peace Pilgrims faced the Supreme Court in Alice Springs on these charges. They hoped to use the court case to put Pine Gap on trial, to ask whether lament can really be considered the immoral act while Pine Gap spies on the whole world and kills people in their home by remote control? To help prove their case that it was necessary for them to go to stop war crimes happening in real time via Pine Gap, the pilgrims called Scott Ludlam and Pine Gap expert Richard Tanter as expert witnesses to court to talk about what Pine Gap does. Richard Tanter teaches foreign policy, nuclear weapons and relations to Indonesia at Melbourne University. He is the chair of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which was recently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Here's Richard Tanter. Can you start by introducing yourself? Hi, I'm Richard Tanter, uh, University of Melbourne. And... You are also part of the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. In the next few weeks, there'll be an event at Pine Gap. Uh, can you tell us what is your interest in Pine Gap? Well, I'm interested in Pine Gap for uh, reasons principally to do with uh, 
the impact it has on Australia and Australian defence policy, as well as its involvement in global surveillance and nuclear weapons issues, particularly preparations for nuclear war. war. So I think Pine Gap is extremely important uh, for Australians to think about. Uh, it really binds almost literally hard wires into uh, the American alliance. It makes us much more likely, I think, that in conflicts such as uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, other places, our default position will be um, the same as the United States, whether or not in any given case Australian interests and American interests actually align. So I think it's really important for Australians to think about Pine Gap. It's quite secretive. Uh, There's not much known about it. What happens at Pine Gap? Well, it does um, principally three things. Firstly, it's what it was established for and still its biggest, uh, most important operation, uh, which involves about 20 of the F-33 antennas that are at Pine Gap today, is it's a uh, ground station uh, for controlling and downlinking data from three very large American signals intelligence satellites. Signals intelligence is just the military term for uh, electronic transmissions. In this case, those three satellites uh, sit above the um, uh, parts of the Pacific and Indian Ocean of the equator, um, staring down and uh, basically able to pick up any radio signal really uh, in their area of coverage, which really pretty much covers everything from the in the western part of Africa through to the mid-Pacific. That, of course, is the major area of American military interests around the world, including China and Russia. Uh, so Pine Gap collects a vast amount of data um, from those satellites. It's downlinked to Pine Gap. It's uh, processed there and then analysed and then distributed through the American uh, intelligence and most importantly their military networks because that signal intelligence, it's used not only in military operations in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, but it's also the way that the United States uh, military and the CIA get some of the targeting data used for drone assassinations in countries with which neither the United States nor Australia are at war. That's the first thing, signals intelligence. The second thing really is um, it's a rem- uh, relay ground station, actually operates this part operates automatically, uh, controlled from the United States uh, for downlinking data from American early warning satellites. These are the satellites with giant infrared uh, telescopes on them, again, staring down from 36,000 kilometres. Most importantly, the United States are looking for the heat bloom of a launch of a missile attack on the United States, but also contributing to American and Japanese uh, missile defence. Um, There's a third function, which is basically it has special antennas on the ground pointing up at uh, foreign satellites, uh, listening to everything that they are downlinking. So, for example, most relevant to Australia, uh, Indonesian telecommunications satellites. That's one way that we uh, spy on Indonesia. But signals intelligence uh, is really the most important, followed by these thermal imaging, early warning missile defence satellites. How do we know what happens there? Is this publicly available or has this been leaked? It is now. It is publicly available. Uh, 
it's often there is a lot of secrecy about Pine Gap, but uh, with my colleague Desmond Ball at ANU, who's been working on Pine Gap going back to the 1970s, it really is possible to find out a great deal. And through the Nautilus Institute, with which I also work, we've published um, eight technical papers with other colleagues in the last uh, two years about Pine Gap, and we really do have a very good idea of what goes on there, and particularly the transformation in the last uh, 10, 15 years away from CIA concerns with strategic intelligence, uh, initially those uh, single intelligence satellite, um, satellites were there to pick up the telemetry from Soviet uh, missiles being tested, so then the Americans would know what their strategic capabilities are. That still goes on, but now it's much more concerned with actual war fighting uh, in the Middle East, Afghanistan, and in, in other parts of the world. You can, we can find out about this. We have a clear uh, evidence about the American military uh, uh, units that are operating there. This is really now pretty well known. So how important to the U.S. is Pine Gap? That question is harder to answer than it used to be. Uh, Pine Gap is immensely important, um, together with its companion station in Britain, Menworth Hill in Yorkshire. These are the two most important, the two largest uh, intelligence uh, stations outside uh, the United States itself. Uh, it's hard to answer because in the old days, uh, Pine Gap used to be effectively a standalone uh, um, operation. It controlled its satellites, men with Hill controlled their satellites, um, and the two didn't get mixed up. Now, men with Hill, uh, Pine Gap, uh, other stations in New Zealand and America are linked together both by satellite communication and by optical fibre. So they pass the data and, if you like, the workload around between them. Uh, that means Pine Gap is part of a system which is absolutely critical for the United States, both for intelligence and military operations. Uh, but it's not standalone. It's, we have to understand that Pine Gap now fits in, literally, it's hardwired into uh, the American intelligence and military functions. So Pine Gap is very, very important, but it's not Pine Gap alone now. Another thing that you mentioned is a worry about Australia's sovereignty or Australia's involvement in US wars. If there was a potential conflict between, say, the US and China, uh, how would that affect Australia's security or Australia's involvement? If there's a major conflict between the US and China, uh, then Pine Gap becomes uh, very quickly a fairly high-priority target for uh, China, which would require a nuclear attack on the Pine Gap facility, principally because in the event of that major conflict between the United States and China, the first thing that uh, each country wants to do is effectively, if you like, metaphorically, to blind the other side to uh, disable uh, its satellite surveillance capacities. One way of doing that is attacking the ground stations. The other way is to attack the uh, satellites themselves. We think both will happen. Uh, in the event of a major conflict involving the United States and Russia, uh, Pine Gap becomes even more important. And uh, there's no doubt that Pine Gap today, as it was during the Cold War, um, is a high-priority target uh, for adversaries in the United States if it 
if we are moving to the point of really global nuclear war. And realistically, if the Australian government wasn't happy with what happened at Pine Gap, how much power would they have to sort of affect what the US does there? Well, legally, the the treaty uh, between Australia and Pine Gap can be terminated in one year with only um, initiative of either side. Clearly, what you're really getting at is, do we have uh, governments with the political will uh, to put limits on what happens at Pine Gap or even to say simply, no, you must close it? The question is, uh, do we have governments which are willing to use uh, their connection to the United States, their role as an alliance friend, to say, well, in certain circumstances, as a friend, we think this is not in your interest or ours, and we want you to desist. Uh, the United States in that situation is likely to exert very great political pressure on Australian governments, and the reality is we haven't seen many Australian governments willing to make those kind of statements to the United States. Richard Tanter, who was called as an expert witness at the Pine Gap Peace Pilgrims trial. By the way, if you like Rovic's radical lyrics as much as I do, you'll want to know that you can legally download free Rovic's MP3s at SoundClick on the internet. That's SoundClick. Good on you, David, for giving us your tunes for free. But what about the drones? Alex Edney Brown is doing a PhD about the psychological impacts of drone warfare. Here she is with Andy Payne. Could you start by introducing yourself? Um, I'm Alex Edney Brown. I'm doing a PhD at the University of Melbourne in international relations. Um, But my research looks specifically at the emotional and psychological effects of drone warfare for both um, civilians living under drones in Afghanistan, um, but also US Air Force drone personnel. Besides the, the normal effects of war, which are very terrible, Drones have a a specific kind of effect and specific uh, moral questions around them. Do you want to quickly go over what some of those are? Yeah, um, well, this is an interesting question, how drone warfare differs from regular forms of aerial warfare, because obviously living under any kind of bombardment um, has very negative emotional and psychological effects. Um, But living under drones specifically causes people to think about how they're being surveilled all of the time and how that surveillance uh, may result in their activity being labelled as suspicious by people on the other side of the world who have very little understanding of their culture. Um, And so with that in mind, um, people start to change their normal activities um, and sort of isolate themselves, stay at home more, so that they don't get uh, killed or injured in a drone attack, um, being mistaken for members of the Taliban or Daesh, etc. Um, so those are some effects unique to drone warfare. Um, others involve the the specific sounds that drones make, um, and how. Um, Hearing that sound can remind people of um, the day in which their friend or family member was attacked by a drone. It's a, it's a trigger for PTSD and um, all of the awful memories that come with that. 
There has been a, a, like a high number of civilians killed in the U.S. drone program, hasn't there? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, a heinous amount of innocent people are killed because of drone warfare. Um, and we'll never really know the true numbers of that because a lot of the time um, the people killed are classified as um, EKIA, which stands for Enemies Killed in Action. Um, so essentially, if you're a military-aged male, which is anyone, you know, technically 16 and up, but how do you tell age via surveillance imagery? Any teenage boy up is considered a um, combatant killed in an area of active hostilities, meaning like a war zone. Um, and there's no, there's often no one on the ground to do posthumous investigation to make sure that that was actually uh, a militant, and often they're civilians. Um, and the, the 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 figures that the U.S. government um, finally came out with last year under the Obama administration were massively low-balled. They were, um, they've been contested um, by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and several other sort of independent monitoring organizations. Um, yeah, and, and that's just that's just casualties. The psychological effect um, is immeasurable. Um, there's no quantitative measurement that can sufficiently um, communicate what it's like for people to continue to live in their community when they've lost so many family members and friends to drone attacks and they still on a weekly or daily basis hear the sound of drones hovering above and they think that they might be killed that day or they think that their friend or another family member might be killed that day. There's, there's no quantitative data that can communicate that. Mm. So Australia doesn't uh, have a drone bombing program, but we do have Pine Gap, the US intelligence facility in the center of Australia, which plays quite an important role in the U.S. drone program. What does Pine Gap have to do with the drones? Um, well, Pine Gap's a really important plays a really important role in the drone program um, because it collects a huge amount of uh, what's called signals intelligence, um, which is essentially um, data that is transmitted by cell phones and radios um, and the U.S. Air Force, well, CIA, NSA, U.S. Air Force and other armed forces branches use this kind of signals intelligence data uh, to make decisions about who should be targeted in a drone attack or an air attack. Um, but often, because this is sort of uh, it's digital data, it's metadata. Um, it's taking things like the time at which a call was made and where a call was made from and who the phone call was um, directed to to make life and death decisions. Um, often the content of these calls is not even looked at. Um, so 
you have a situation where Pine Gap is processing cell phone metadata and handing this over to the United States and then decisions about whether a person ought to live or die are made on the basis of this information. And this is a way in which um, responsibility for uh, deaths and drone warfare is distributed across the globe. Like, there's another airbase in Germany, Ramstein Air Base, that does the same thing. It processes the signals intelligence. And uh, one of the biggest problems with drone warfare is it's never immediately clear who is culpable for drone attacks. There are so many people involved in just one drone mission that um, no one person can carry the guilt for that. Um, and this is just another example of how the United States is outsourcing the labor of killing to um, other people, contractors, Australian um, signals directorate staff, in order to distribute this responsibility for killing. That was Alex Edney Brown, a PhD student, talking to Andy Payne. You're listening to Behind the Lines on Community Radio 2XX, and today's show is Pine Gap on Trial. I'm Beck Horridge. Paul Christie was the first pilgrim to be tried. Paulie represented himself in court, emphasising that he went into Pine Gap to pray and sing, and that he was non-violent, respectful and friendly, and had no intent of causing harm. Indeed, he was wearing a bright red jacket, that would have made it very difficult to evade capture if he went further toward the base buildings. He played a shaman's rattle, sang and prayed for peace in a dry creek bed inside the base. Paulie Christie explained to me what he was doing when I interviewed him just before the trial. My name is Paul Christie. I'm from Cairns, or Gimoy area of North Queensland. I came to Alice Springs last September to join in with actions around the 50th anniversary of Pine Gap. I am a prayer activist and a witness, and the work that I do is to go to these places of war-making and pray for the victims of their activities in that place. Last year, I was with another group of people, we call ourselves the Peace Pilgrims, and our action was to walk on to the lands that hold the military base Pine Gap and to pray and lament for those people that are murdered through the assistance of the actions of the Pine Gap military base. Uh, Today I'm in Alice Springs after waiting 13 months to face the music, so to speak, and to have my day in court around this very issue, to highlight extenuating circumstances that Australia has allowed themselves to be put into regarding their complicity with war crimes and crimes against humanity that are carried out with the assistance of the operations of Pine Gap. I will be pleading not guilty in the case on the grounds of a conscientious objection to such actions and a clear and defined defence of others and a respect of these people that have been killed. I didn't do anything criminal in my actions. I walked in ceremony. 
I was praying the whole time. I was cooperative and respectful to anybody I encountered and I didn't damage any property. I uh, feel that it's important for any and everybody who's concerned about human rights on this planet to think how they can make a stand and add to the voice the chorus that seeks justice and truth on this planet. That was Paulie Christie, one of the Pine Gap Peace Pilgrims who have recently been tried for entering US spy and drone base Pine Gap near Alice Springs. On Wednesday the 15th of November, Paulie Christie was found guilty of being on prohibited lands without a permit. At the time of this recording, he was waiting for sentencing. The maximum penalty is a seven years imprisonment. The Crown Prosecutor was pushing for a jail term for Paulie, a youth worker, but the judge was indicating that he did not see this as justified as Pawley had no sinister or malicious intent to damage infrastructure at Pine Gap. What is the theory behind the non-violent direct action the Peace Pilgrims applied? Andy Payne explained at a forum held in Alice Springs during the trials. One of the things in terms of resistance to war and to the US Empire, an immense machine of power, the US Empire, and... Uh, coming up against is very difficult. We're in a war without kind of end in time-wise. It's just stretching on forever or without end in its reach. It goes into everybody's computer. It goes into all these different countries across the world where the wars are declared or not. It goes into our civil liberties. And so it's an immense thing. And in the face of that, it's like, well, what do we do to stop it? And I think uh, one of the things that we really bring, and some people might think that we're crazy for coming here and being in court and representing ourselves in court, uh, facing these charges. But I guess uh, the theory of civil disobedience and of nonviolence is one of how the powerless can use what power they have against the powerful. And so this idea that your own body is the power that you have, and so going to these places and physically... Uh, getting in the way, you know, you can disrupt things for a short time. I've locked onto things, I've done tree sits, and so you can disrupt operations. But even just by being there, your presence gets in the way, and our presence in court here gets in the way of this mythology of Pine Gap being a secret place or Australia being a willing partner in the US alliance. And so that's, I guess, part of the thing of the pilgrimage is it's that, it's a pilgrimage to go there and be in that place. And it's, that's what we really hope to bring is this theory of, of civil disobedience, of using your body as your resistance and your presence as your resistance. And so a big part of our philosophy as peace pilgrims is going to these places of violence and putting ourselves in the way to witness, to lament, and to resist. That was Peace Pilgrim Andy Payne. In late 1966, a joint US-Australian treaty called for the creation of the Joint Defence Space Research Facility. This was the precursor to Pine Gap. The purpose of the facility was initially referred to in public as space research. And I can actually remember this as a kid being really enthusiastic when it appeared in the papers that there was going to be a space research station. Operations started in 1970 
when about 400 American families moved to Central Australia. And in 1999, with the Australian government refusing to give details to the Australian Senate Committee on Treaties and Intelligence, Professor Des Ball from the Australian National University was called to give an outline of Pine Gap. According to Professor Ball, since December 1966, when the Australian and United States government signed the Pine Gap Treaty, Pine Gap had grown from the original two antennas to about 18 antennas in 1999. The number of staff had increased from around 400 in the early 80s to 600 in the early 90s, and I think it's at about 800 now. 800 staff working at Pine Gap and living in Alice Springs. The biggest expansion of Pine Gap occurred after the end of the Cold War. Part of the evidence the Peace Pilgrims put to the judge was that Pine Gap is on Arente land, the sovereignty of which has never been ceded. So over 50 years ago, Australia leased the land to the USA for the spy facility in exchange for just one peppercorn. That's right, just one peppercorn. And the US ambassador laughed as he received this peppercorn. Here's what Arente man Chris Tomless has to say about the deal. Can you start off by introducing yourself? I'm uh, Paul Daddy, Chris Tomlin from Central Australia, Alice Springs from the Arunti tribe. And Chris, you have put out a call out uh, later this year for people to come out there and help close down Pine Gap. Can you tell us what inspired that? What inspired it is that it's like um, you own a house and you've got a nice big yard and then someone drives into your backyard sets up a cannon and starts blowing the shit out of your neighbours across the road. So you walk into your backyard and you say, hey, what are you doing? And they grab you and arrest you. That's what the Pine Gap facility is. That was a rente man, Chris Tomlins, talking about the US spy base, Pine Gap. And here's Kevin Buzzacott, often referred to as Uncle Kev. He's an Indigenous Australian from the Arabunna Nation in the northern South Australia, and he has campaigned widely for cultural recognition, justice, land rights for Aboriginal people. Uh, he's initiated and led numerous campaigns, including against uranium mining at Olympic Dam in South Australia or on Kokatha land and the exploitation of water from the Great Artesian Basin. So here's Kev Buzzacott in a light-hearted moment at the, a convergence of hundreds of people at the gates of Pine Gap in September last year. And this was around the same time as the Peace Pilgrims entered the base to pray and lament war. Hey, hey you mob. Old Kev's the name. Shut the down Pine Gap. That's me game. And I know you're all thinking the same. So help me bring it on. Yeah, let's shut them down. That was Eastern Orente Band. And before that, Kev Buzzacott with his rap to close Pine Gap. 
The Peace Pilgrims ask people to spread the word on Pine Gap, what it does, and the ordinary resistance by an ordinary group of friends who could not turn a blind eye to the violence perpetrated in the centre of our country. For more information on Pine Gap, see closepinegap.org or on Facebook, Close Pine Gap or Twitter at Close Pine Gap. Close Pine Gap! That was the Spindles with Dream Human. Don't just go to sleep, create what you see. I want to read to you what Senator Andrew Bartlett said recently in Parliament. He quoted Malala Yousafzai, the esteemed young woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize and inspired people around the world to stand up against terrorism and the Taliban, who shot her in the head and tried to kill her for the crime of going to school. And when she got that Peace Prize and had that audience with President Obama, she asked him directly, Please, stop dropping those bombs from those drones. You're just making things worse. You're making the wars worse. You're making terrorism worse. She was ignored, unfortunately, but that request from her was a request to our government as well and the Australian people, because we are part of that via our continuing agreement with Pine Gap. As my process of making this edition of Behind the Lines draws to a close, news on how the Pine Gap Six were sentenced has come in. On December the 4th, Judge Reeves fined Paulie Christie $2,000 with no jail time, which was very much against the prosecution's wishes. In sentencing the other five pilgrims, the judge rejected the prosecution's claim that their trespass potentially struck at the heart of national security since they had done no damage and had no tools with which to do damage. Franz Dowling was fined $1,250 with no conviction recorded. In sentencing, the judge considered that France was only 19 and that he works in a street kitchen. In court, as he stood before the judge, he had been unable to stop himself breaking down in tears when he spoke of the people that had been killed by drones. Judge Reeves took into account that Franz is concerned about the mass killing of innocents. The judge considered Margaret Postorius's, Andy Payne's and Jim Dowling's previous history of non-violent peace activists, finding them from $2,500 to $5,000. Jim Dowling, who has the longest history of peace protest convictions, got the largest $5,000 fine. But when asked if he will pay it, he said he might prefer to go to jail, but we'll wait and see. You're listening to 2XX Behind the Lines, a special edition on the Pine Gap trial, and I'm Beck Horridge. 
Two Double X brings us stories like this that you won't hear elsewhere. Please go to the Two Double X webpage and become a Two Double X subscriber. At a forum about Pine Gap, organised by IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, former Senator Scott Ludlam spoke about his experience in Parliament when he tried to find out about what was happening inside the secret base and questioned the morality of such a place as Pine Gap in Australia. Scott's a member of the Australian Greens. He was Senator in the Australian Senate, representing Western Australia, from July 2008 until July 2017, and served as Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens and Spokesperson on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Nuclear Issues, which brought him often to the Territory to support the Muckety campaign. He was a protester at Pine Gap well before he was a Senator, and very often tried to use the parliamentary levers to shine light on Pine Gap. Welcome, Scott. I'd also like to open by acknowledging that we're on the traditional country of the Aranda people and acknowledge their custodianship of this ground and the fact that sovereignty over this country was never ceded. Particularly, um, as a number of other speakers have done, I want to acknowledge that unacknowledged and undeclared war of the frontier war. If we're here at a gathering of the peace movement, it is worth expressing our acknowledgement of the fact that war was declared on the traditional owners of this country and that that war, until some form of treaty or treaties are signed, that war will be unresolved and unconcluded. I first came up to this town in 2002, and this is a, an extraordinarily beautiful part of the world. And I've just realized three or four, maybe five of my visits to this place have been because of that thing, 20 or 30 kilometers from here, that, that military base that is so deeply indicated, uh, implicated in so much of what's wrong with the world. But before that time, before about 2002, for me, it was just a name. It was something that I would hear Joe Valentine talk about. It was something that was obviously very important to the peace movement, but it didn't really click until 2002, coming up here, which was the run-up to the Iraq War. Now, I live in a port city. I live in Fremantle. And we, uh, in a little, uh, quite a nuggety little group called FANG, Fremantle Anti-Nuclear Group, we're organising demonstrations against warship visits. So we were getting carrier battle groups come through Fremantle. They'd spend uh, a couple of days in port. Suddenly our, our little town would fill up with, with uh, sailors and people, you know, clearly completely obliterated. And then they would, they would climb back onto their vessels. They'd sail over the horizon. And we knew that where they were heading was the Persian Gulf. And at that time, in a kind of a naive way, I didn't believe that they could possibly uh, go through with the invasion of Iraq. You know, despite those of us who had participated in actions and demonstrations against Afghanistan, you know, we put a thousand people into the cultural centre in Perth, but we also knew that public opinion was completely against us, in part because people were still reeling at the horror of the attacks of September 11. We went out, we did our job, you know, we did what we could in the peace movement to be putting those arguments for diplomacy first, for negotiation, uh, and on, on those occasions we weren't successful, and I suspect there'd probably be people here in this room who, who have been doing that sort of work for much longer than me. 
But Iraq, I thought, and millions of us around the world thought, surely they could not be so insane as to try and pull that off. Even if all you're interested in is military strategy, surely that's a disaster for your engagement in Afghanistan. And I was one of those amongst probably everybody in this room and millions of others who uh, did our bit for the anti-war movement and also for supporting people who would go further than writing a letter to the editor, who would go further than an op-ed, who would go further than sign a petition or march in a rally, but actually at one point, like many of my mentors, go over the wire, put their bodies in the way and make their bodies part of that physical confrontation, that non-violent physical confrontation with some of the most violent institutions in the world. And as it turns out, we were right. The millions of people who marched and who demonstrated and who participated in all forms of direct action uh, and civil disobedience were right. And the leaders, the tiny cohort of experts, people, some of whom would put their names to these decisions, some of whose names we will never know, those in the media who backed them up, were absolutely dead wrong. And hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives as a result. They've never apologised. They've never been brought to justice. They've never been charged with war crimes. Some of them in Australia and around the world are still in positions of power and would still come into Parliament and lecture us about national security and about the virtues of the next war and the one after that. But to me, it meant that trust would be broken forever. They would never trust people in those institutions, given that even the basic reforms that we were calling for, let's have an inquiry into how we could illegally invade a country at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives. I want to know how that could possibly happen. And secondly, let's take the, the decision-making power out of the hands of one guy in the Prime Minister's office to commit Australian troops to war, to commit Australian diplomatic, political and military support and intelligence support of bases like that just down the road for similar catastrophic mistakes in the future. Let's, let's transfer that power from the Prime Minister's office into the Parliament. We might still lose those votes, but at least the politicians are going to have to come in and argue the case and put their name on the public record for why we should be committing young Australians to go into harm's way and to potentially commit enormous violence on people a long way from here who pose absolutely no, no security threat whatsoever to this country. So what I discovered is that the avenues of transparency since then, even since then, not only have we not had those reforms to prevent it from happening again, but the avenues of transparency and accountability have been closed off and the state is in the process of walling itself off, the national security state, if you like, walling itself off and withdrawing and retreating behind one-way glass. I would argue that it is more difficult more than a decade after that catastrophic strategic misadventure and disaster, it's more difficult now for an ordinary citizen, let alone a parliamentarian, to find out what these people are doing, what they're thinking, how these decisions are being made than it was then. So I've just wrapped up nine years in the parliament. I finished up in July. Uh, I appear to have accidentally pulled the ceiling in on the rest of them, and I hope... <laughs> hope <laughs> All right, I gather that's okay with you, so that's good. Um, so during, during that time, um, at different times holding different portfolios, but kind of had the privilege for a fair bit of that time 
in working on communications, on nuclear issues, on foreign affairs and on defence, and kind of the overlap amongst all these things, which is obviously when you come to a place like Pine Gap, that's where, those, that's where that Venn diagram, they all intersect in that particular place, if you think. Global telecommunications, nuclear issues, foreign affairs and defence. And so it was kind of, it became my job rather than a hobby to find out exactly what it is that goes on in that place and to do my bit to support people who were advocating for a more independent and human-centred foreign policy and to get us out of these endless and self-perpetuating wars. And as it turns out, um, we weren't able to do a lot of that stuff. Uh, oh, sorry, well, we, we weren't able to do a lot of that stuff, but I just wanted to reflect on the fact that it, the Peace Pilgrims have called Richard and I as witnesses in the court case, and I'll speak on that a little bit more in a second, but I'm not going to be able to present any, any of our work relevant to parliamentary activities, the work of committees. You, you legally cannot present that in court because the Parliamentary Privileges Act says that you can't. So I'm going to talk about it tonight instead. In exchange for you know, being able to confront those kind of issues in that role, we are given a campaign toolbox in parliamentary office absolutely to die for. So apart from kick-ass staff, and some of you probably know Felicity Ruby, who's here tonight, who's just uh, an absolutely indefatigable uh, advocate for peace work. We've got tools like budget estimates, like questions on notice, the committee work that we can do, the parliamentary library, the committee stage of Senate debates, uh, as well as direct access to, you know, to people. You can ask for a ministerial briefing and they more or less have to send someone down to your office. So having those doors open like, is an incredible uh, opportunity for the work that we were able to do. And so how did it work out? All right, I've got two examples for how it worked out. Given that incredible range of parliamentary kind of democratic levers that we can pull, I hope you're all deeply cynical of that institution, but I hope you can also hold a place in your heart for that amount of democratic leverage that has been wrested from the executive, which after all started out as a feudal dictatorship. Um, the parliament was formed to begin to distribute power back from uh, from tyranny back to the people. It does it extremely imperfectly, but those levers such as they exist were fought for at, a, at enormous cost to people who came through before us. So, here's a couple of quick examples. 2nd of December 2013. This is a question on notice to the Minister of Defence. So you write these down, you submit them, you get an answer back 30 days later. You have to get an answer. They're legally obliged to provide you with an answer. They're not legally obliged to provide you with a good answer. So um, this is what we put to them. It's like a six or seven part question, but basically it goes like this. What role does Pine Gap play in the United States government's armed drone uh, program? And then it kind of, it, it fleshes it out a bit and it, it, f it finishes up with, and on what basis do you claim that it is lawful? So what policies apply and what on what basis of law do you believe that it is legal to conduct a global drone assassination program or to enable that through a facility like Pine Gap? So the answer that you get back, and I don't normally read stuff during speeches because I know that it's boring, but I feel like this is so artfully done that I, um, Flick and I wanted to share it with you. So the joint um, Pine Gap facility 
uh, Joint Defence Facility at Pine Gap, is an essential component of our national defence and of our alliance with the United States. All activities undertaken at Pine Gap are subject to the full knowledge and, uh, knowledge and concurrence of the Australian government. This new language that came along relatively recently. We went from just being totally blindsided, basically here's just a patch of area that we stole off Aboriginal people that you can set your base up on, we understand you're not going to tell us what goes on there, which is kind of the 1970s and 80s. And then we pivot to this idea of full knowledge and concurrence, which means Australia's legally, morally, um, as Richard pointed out, liable for, the, for what is trafficked and transacted through that place. So the answer goes on. All activities are conducted in accordance with Australian law. That's handy language, isn't it? Consistent with long-standing practice, the government does not comment on intelligence matters. Full knowledge and concurrence, and we're not going to tell you. We know, we agree, and we're not going to tell you what goes on out there. That's kind of the official line. So May 2014, about a year or so later, in a budget estimate session, and these are a bit more free-flowing than the questions that you chuck in on paper. So this is George Brandis, the Attorney General, uh, and me, I think in a Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade um, Estimates Committee in 2014. This is after a couple of Australians were, were killed in a drone strike in Yemen. Um, so I just put that question to George Brandis. Can tell us a little bit about these Australians who were murdered by a drone strike. And he comes back and he says, I cannot comment on these matters. You know that. We do not comment on these matters. I'm not commenting on the matter. I refer you to my earlier answer. Um, this, is, this is the shit that I don't miss, actually, about that job. Um, so I, I pushed it a little bit further, because sometimes it's worth that. Are you aware of whether the... Pine Gap facility in Central Australia plays a central role in the targeting of these strikes. George comes back with this, no, and if I were, I would not be commenting on the matter. So this is one of those interactions where you come away knowing less than you did when you went in. The point I'm trying to make here, because we could, you know, could provide you with a lot more transcripts like that, but you, I think you get the picture is that Parliament's limbs of inquiry, of transparency, of accountability, and of change, and even of argument, right? Like, even of the government and the major opposition parties kind of going at it and having that debate in public, which is sort of the foundation of this adversarial system that we've adopted, that lapses, that's paralysed. That is, that dynamic and those accountability tools are completely tranquilised when you come to questions of national security, questions of war and peace, even big picture foreign policy questions about our role in the world and our alliances, Parliament's mechanisms go silent. Even if there's people in there kind of trying to move the levers, you discover after a very short time that they don't work. And that makes the civil society movements and the role of uh, people like the Peace Pilgrims and everybody in this room tonight even more important. It was a convention, this bipartisanship was, that's a convention established during wartime, right? During war on global fascism and on imperial Japan. But Andy, I thought, put this really well a little bit earlier in the night. War is different today. You know, this is not like two armies squaring off against each other who have declared war on each other. War is different. It's extending, it's diffusing, it is now endless, it's self-perpetuating, provides an extremely useful driver even in democracies for continued collapse of power behind this one-way glass. 
And war on the internet means that it's kind of everywhere. It means your mobile phone is now a site of militarization and conflict. It means defense and intelligence matters are really intimate. They're right inside the home. War is, is you know, is the Rage Against the Machine song. The front line is everywhere. Now, we don't, in this fortunate part of the world, don't have to worry about drones over our villages, pulverizing wedding parties, or um, attacking people just because they happen to be carrying a certain SIM card in their mobile phone. But that shit is being done in our name. And we know, and we support you, I'm from a long way from here, so it's, I know it's easy enough for me to say, there is a nuclear target about 25 kilometers from here, through which the daily business of war and destruction is transacted. So what do we do about it? Because we found out uh, in the work that we were doing that we could find out more, occasionally much more, from whistleblowers and from people who would blow the whistle, come out from behind that one-way glass and say, this is what I was doing for a living. Uh, whether it's our, uh, our people like Edward Snowden, who managed with very adept media management and an enormous amount of courage to just basically go out and say, this is what's going on, or really painstaking researchers, people like Professor Tanter uh, and Professor Ball, who would spend literally decades piecing together what is available both from open source and from whistleblowers so that the rest of the peace movement is well informed. I don't think there is a nuclear power station at Pine Gap or a submarine pen 17 floors down. And the reason that I can be fairly confident of that is because people have diligently researched the shit out of that place and put that together. But we were finding out more from these folk than we were from those parliamentary accountability tools where you could forensically go through the, our horrendous welfare budget, but there are these kind of shutters would come down when you start talking about war and, and destruction around the world. So what to do? A couple of kind of quick hints, and then I reckon we'll go to Q&A because that what to do is a very interactive question. Firstly, I feel as though President Trump is a moment. Jeremy Scahill, who, who um, uh, is one of the people behind The Intercept, uh, which publishes such powerful material on this stuff, uh, is quoted uh, last year as saying, Hillary was the preferred candidate of empire. You know, if you want kind of the all systems normal, smooth face of imperialism, everything's under control, the same people, grown-ups are in charge, they were kind of hoping and, and basically counting on the fact that Hillary was going to win the White House. And she didn't. This fucking monster won it. And now the mask of empire is very, is well and truly down. And so to me, that feels like an opportunity. You don't just have Malcolm Fraser, may he rest in peace, talking about how we need to cut away from empire and stand on our own feet in the world and be a much more humanitarian presence in, in the world. But you've got Paul Keating saying we need to take another look at the alliance. And you've got these very conservative people at these very conservative think tanks like Aspie and Lowy saying, oh, actually, maybe it's not sensible that this one narcissistic, orange, bloated piece of garbage has his finger on the nuclear button. Maybe Australia needs to take a step back and have a more independent role in our own foreign policy. And I feel like politically that is an opportunity for all of us because our message is going to carry a bit further because so many uh, people who aren't in this room and don't come to these meetings are also now very worried about the direction the alliance could take us. The second one I feel is a bit more personal in a way, it's push back on the surveillance state, is uh, install a VPN on your mobile phone. 
use your phone in different ways. Install an encrypted app like Signal and use that instead of text messages on your phone. There's a bunch of fairly reasonably simple, low-cost things that all of us can do to raise the cost of mass indiscriminate surveillance. So make it a bit harder, pull your communications a little bit further away from things like mass uh, mandatory data retention. The third thing, I guess, is um, in the peace movement is remember to reach out to other movements. So we've got an important voice and part to play in people trying to stop climate change from getting completely out of control, people working in the refugee movement, trying to get those men off Manus, trying to have a more humanitarian approach to refugees. These people are fleeing war. They're fleeing war that in some instances was started by our own government. And then the big one, I guess, is recognizing that nonviolent direct action is not for everyone. Not everybody is going to want to go and trespass onto that base, but then it is absolutely essential that we support the people who do. Uh, these are folk who, obviously, as you've heard earlier this evening, wear their values on their sleeve and are very upfront about the tradition that they're coming from, about the fact that these are nonviolent and completely peaceful occupations of heavily militarized space. They were invited there by traditional owners and in some instances don't even recognize that they were trespassing. And that there's a couple of things that we can offer these folk, having them now taken this incredibly courageous action for all of us. One is profile, because not enough people know that this uh, trial is even underway. And with each of us, can see about 15 mobile phones in people's lap. But we can magnify the voices of these people by sharing the stuff that they're putting out, sharing the podcast, sharing the photographs, sharing the court transcripts, and sharing your own opinions. We can magnify a thousandfold without even really exaggerating the number of people in this room just by telling our own stories to our peers. And they are more likely to listen to you than they are really to some kind of news report in the background, even though media is still important. And the second thing that all of us can do, on the assumption maybe that the court is going to find that they did in fact trespass, then uh, as Richard identified, very, very heavy and punitive penalties potentially apply. You can face seven years in jail for going over that fence. That is completely outrageous. Our best case scenario is that we're going to have to help fundraise these folks some pretty heavy duty fines in coming months. Our worst case scenario is jail support. And the difference between those two things and what hangs in the balance at the moment is writing a letter of clemency, it can be a really short one, to Justice Reeves in the next 48 hours to say, with respect, Your Honour, the public interest and society and peace and security is not served by locking up these people of such good heart and of such honest intentions. There is no public benefit in jailing them. Give them a little fine, you know, there are actions like this that have occurred around the world where people have been able to run these arguments of necessity, that we have done this to prevent further war and destruction in our name. And it's not necessarily clear whether these arguments are going to stand up um, for our brave colleagues. So that's really, um, there's plenty of other stuff that we can do, but right in the here and now, while this trial is underway, there are global eyes on this, and this affects how other people, uh, you know, how other prosecutions may roll out in future, as well, obviously, as the lives of these people who've, who've taken these actions on our behalf. So a letter to clemency, please make a note, a couple of paragraphs. is all, you know, I'm an Australian citizen and I don't think any kind of justice or public interest is served in jailing these brave people. Um, and from my own um, point of view, 
And I guess on behalf of all of us, I want to thank the six of you for um, taking these incredibly courageous steps on all of our behalf. Thank you for being here. That was Scott Ludlam speaking at a forum in Alice Springs recently. You're with 2XX Community Radio. And now, to see out the show behind the lines, let's hear from Joe Pug. Goodbye from Beck Horridge.